Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. When most Americans think of a judge, they conjure up an image of an old white man. And for good reason, the vast majority have fit that description throughout American history. But today, I'm sitting down with the first judge in New York that is both female and South Asian. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. And today, I'm sitting down with Judge Raja Rajaswari of New York Criminal Court. When you first moved to this country, could you have imagined that you would someday be appointed to the bench? Absolutely not. When I moved to this country, I was 16 years old. I had traveled a lot of Europe and South Asian countries. I had traveled with my mom, who was a dancer, Indian dance instructor. So I was a performer. So I had the opportunity to see various countries. But for me, the United States was always the land of everyone's dream. So when I came here when I was 16, I saw the Statue of Liberty for the first time. As a young immigrant coming here, it was very, very meaningful to me. But never in my wildest dreams did I ever think I was going to either go to law school or become a judge. Well, you made it here, and for many of our viewers, they may be thinking, well, you had this fun career as an internationally uh, recognized dancer, and now you have such a serious job. Well, for me, law and art have always been the perfect counterpoint. Dance is all about creativity and reaching out to people. And when I went to law school, I found that a lot of those qualities are the same. I mean, I chose a profession where I wanted to reach out and help people. A lot of girls my age, when I was 14 or 15, when I was a teenager, after a certain age, they were not allowed to go to school. Just because you have a daughter instead of a son, it was at least looked upon culturally as, well, what are we going to do with a girl? She's going to have to eventually get married and have a family, so why are we wasting money on education? Let's set it aside for the dowry that she's required to pay and get her married off. That was the cultural background in which I grew up. Some of the girls that I grew up with, I think would have made amazing doctors, judges, politicians, leaders of the free world, if you will, if only they were given the opportunity to actually go obtain their education. But for me, education was always a way out of poverty. Education was always a way out of the social stigma that if you are a woman, you don't really need an education because what are you going to do with it in the end? I had received a research scholarship, I think, when I was about 12 years old. And the research scholarship had allowed me to further bring art to various communities, not just in Chennai, which is southern India where I was born, but all throughout uh, northern and southern India. No matter what I was doing culturally, I always knew in the back of my head I needed to finish my education. Even if I had a good reason to miss it, I didn't want to be one of the statistics that start, like my girlfriends who started school but never got to actually graduate high school. Why don't we move forward to your experience once you came to the United States. So you, you mentioned you came when you were 16. Mm -hmm. That's halfway through high school? Right. Um, again, through my cultural travels, there was 150 years of Indian migration in the Guyana, Trinidad, and Suriname. So Indians had migrated to the West Indies 
and had flourished as a community there. So they had a big Festival of India celebration in 1988. So I was chosen among thousands of artists in India to travel with Mr. Shankar Dayal Sharma. He was the vice president of India at the time. Mm. So me and my mom and our dance troupe had traveled with him for the first time in a plane. And the last leg of that tour ended in New York City. So we got a few days to come to New York City. And it was love at first sight. When I got here, I told my mom, I have to be here, mom. I wanted to go to college. I said I wanted to be a doctor, so I wanted to get my undergrad. And we had come in, like I said, with our official papers. And just New York City stayed with me. Times Square was obviously very thrilling. But the more meaningful impact that had on me was the Statue of Liberty. You know, thousands of immigrants come in and look at it. But very few, I think, realize the actual promise and impact it offers immigrants from so many different ethnic backgrounds and poor countries where there aren't many opportunities. Now, in this country, obviously, you have to work very hard. You have to prove yourself over and over again. But I find that that's true for women in any profession. And in any country as well, probably. Especially in fields of law where it is traditionally a male-dominated profession. Um, I worked as an assistant district attorney as soon as I graduated law school and served in Richmond County here, in fact, for about 16 and a half years before I applied to become a judge last year. Let's take a step back. Mm -hmm. You had this vision Mm -hmm. of coming to the United States. How did that become a reality? So when we were here, as part of that journey in New York, I told my mom... I don't want to go back. Let's stay. I want to get an education and let's stay. And she said, how are we supposed to stay? We're here for a performance. I said, I don't know, but we're going to make this happen. When you first came here, were you in fact here without the appropriate papers? No, when I was here, um, we had our travel permit for the performance for all of um, Trinidad, Tobago, and we had a visa for New York. But what I wanted to do was to stay past the visa expiration and try to get an opportunity to go to school here. And it's probably one of the things that inspired me to go to law school because when we had met with a couple of attorneys, a couple of them were right off the bat said, well, you guys have no money, you have no connection, that's too bad, there's nothing you can do. So we had the opportunity to meet with some cultural leaders, if you will, and some community leaders, and they had directed us and my mom at that time to apply for what is a H-1 visa, which is a work visa, and they helped us modify our status at that point. She ended up teaching dance to some cultural schools in New York State, and I got um, seat in Susan Wagner High School for my 12th grade. So your mom was the original entrepreneur. She was always my pioneer. <laughs> so we started settling here. It was a great experience. And like I said, within a year and a half of settling here, again, we were traveling for a charity performance. Unfortunately, when we were traveling to Canada due to a car accident, my mom passed away. I was about 18 at the time. That's what left me alone and I was injured in the accident as well, so it was pretty... So you were here in the United States with no family. And my dad had traveled from India to come and be with me when my mom passed away, and he said, let's go back to India. We don't have a lot, but we have enough. We have our established community there. Let's just go back. And I said to him, 
if it was easy, Dad. If it was a cakewalk, then everybody would do it. It's heartbreaking because my mom wanted me to succeed. Come and get an education in this country. Yes, it's devastating loss. But after going through so many sacrifices to get here, I didn't want to leave without at least trying. So I said, let me go to community college. Let me serve the community that's given me shelter, room, and hope to stay here. And that was the community in Staten Island. And I still owe them to this day their support for letting a young teenager stay with them to help their children with their school, their studies, with their dance. In return, they gave me hope and a place to stay. So we would shop in the Salvation Army, the thrift store, which I still have a great affinity for. Because when you had to go to school or college or go for, let's say, a scholarship interview, you need to wear a suit. And you can't show up in your jeans and your t-shirt. And you can't afford it in a regular place because you are living on the charity of others. But places like that provided a young immigrant an opportunity to get a secondhand coat or a secondhand suit, but to also present a professional look when you're going and interviewing for That's an interesting perspective on access. It's not just having the brains. It's not just having the opportunity to interview, right. but you also have to look the part to some degree. You do. Unfortunately, people judge you before they speak to you, how you look, how you dress. And then, of course, they pronounce your name correctly or incorrectly. And then they are curious to see what many people have told me is, wow, you speak English so well. I said, but India was a British colony for a couple of hundred years. Everybody in India, what is interesting is they speak so many different dialects and languages. The way they communicate with each other is through English. One thing I wanted to get to do was immigrants like me wanted to stay here, wanted an opportunity. Now, if they tried and they failed, so be it. But if you never give them the opportunity to try, you'll never know what amazing career they could have had. And I wanted to serve the community I grew up with. As I told you, I saw a lot of women and children in that cultural setting. I've also seen a lot of sexual violence against women as a child in Chennai. Most of the rapes in India are... Chennai is the state. Chennai was Madras when I grew up. It's the southern uh, capital where I grew up. And most of the rapes or sex abuses were never even reported because they knew that the stigma will be on the accuser and nobody would take them seriously. So one of the things that I told myself was, I just don't want to be a lawyer. I want to be a lawyer who helps people who need it, but specifically women and children who don't have a voice, either because they're not believed or because they're never going to come forward. And that's a unique perspective to come to justice, having grown up seeing so much injustice. That's exactly right. And So in law school itself, did you find people looked at you differently or were there you know, plenty mm-hmm. of other people who mm-hmm. looked like you sitting alongside you in class? No, there weren't many, but there were, there were a few. I was part of the Asian American Bar Association and I was part of the African American Bar Association. I was technically neither, <laughs> but I felt like I fit in better. There was no South Asian Bar there Association? There was no there. South Asian Bar Association when I went to law school. As I was saying... So what's closest? Should I be Asian or should I be black? They were more welcoming to someone with a different last name and from a different country. But 
One of the things I noticed in the district attorney's office when I started serving was they would have these photographs of attorneys. As I would mentioned, it's a male-dominated field. And in the 80s and 90s, they would have the Bar Association pictures. There would be about 300 men and maybe one woman in that entire picture. I mean, that's how it was over the years. And it's taken a lot for a lot of women, not just women of color, but for women in general to break into the legal profession. And then when you have a last name, Rajaswari, (laughs) and then you come from a different country, it's almost you have to prove yourself more than once. But the challenge is always there. If you're up to the challenge and it's something that you feel like you must do, then you'll work twice as hard to get there. Well, you've had the challenge since day one in the United States. Perhaps you could share a story or two about how someone might have seen you and, and been surprised in either okay. a good or positive have a or negative way. So as I was working in the DA's office, we did criminal court cases and then we got to Supreme and I started doing narcotics trials and felony assaults. But the c- cases that I kept gravitating to were sex abuse and domestic violence cases. Some of the same types of issues you'd seen growing up. And those are the hardest cases to prosecute or to defend even as a defense attorney because those are the cases that tear at your heartstrings because you're talking about rape and murder of very young children or women in domestic violence situations. I can tell you it's not for the faint of heart because those cases stay with you. I had prosecuted one defendant who was accused of raping over two dozen young children, ages seven to 13, and had videotaped them, and had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of videotapes stored in his house that he would watch over and over and over again. So your your daily life at this point is facing up against a monster. And cataloging it to indict him for 137 counts, I have to watch 137 different acts of rape and sexual violence oh against God, that's children. That's something I'd never even thought of. And in the process of putting this person behind bars, you have to walk yourself through some of these tragedies. You do. And one of the hardest things in that case was to inform the parents. And all the parents were single moms. They were mostly from African countries. They were poor single mothers or great mothers would work at nights either as a nursing home aide and he would get the confidence of everybody. Well, he was a sweet uncle. He was this old guy who would offer sweets to the children, would watch everybody's kid. So everybody was comfortable leaving their children with him and going to work because he was the neighborhood uncle. What nobody knew was he was raping the children for years and years and years. And when we found out years later, we had, through search warrants, we had gotten, unfortunately, hundreds of tapes that I had to review and catalog and count for indictment. We had to reach out to the parents of these children and have them tested because it was also HIV positive at some point. But when you're sitting down with these mothers, was it easier in some ways for them looking over and seeing Mm -hmm. another strong woman I think it was easier because I understood where they came from and I understood the need to work and support your family. And I came from a different country as well because they kept saying, but we don't know the customs here. We trusted them and we made a mistake. And I explained to them, unfortunately, sexual predators exist in all corners of the world. How we deal with them is different. But one of the stories I wanted to share with you was I had a Pakistani woman who had come into the office 
as in most DV cases, there's a very, I'm very sorry, DV? Domestic violence, sorry. Most domestic violence cases, they never go forward. Because it's he said, she said, or because the, the witness backs down? It's that, but I found in several minority communities, it is a social stigma. In certain communities, like in the Muslim communities or in the South Asian communities, you don't accuse your husband of rape. Then you will be shunned as a pariah in society. Because you're embarrassing the family? Because you're embarrassing the family and he's the man. So how can you actually accuse him of something like that? You mentioned an example where being a minority, being a female, may have been reassuring to some of the witnesses or some of the families of the victims. Were there any instances where you felt like it was being used against you? Where you felt like people were unwilling or less willing to take you seriously because of your your gender or your race? Well, as a sex crimes and domestic violence prosecutor, it helped me reach a lot of women because there was a Pakistani woman who had come here for a domestic violence case and never expected somebody in the office to speak her language. She came to Staten Island. It's not known as the bastion of multiple South Asian languages, <laughs> if you will. But when she walked into the office and saw me, she started crying. And I, I was able to speak to her because I speak multiple South Asian languages. And she said, it's God who sent you here today. So I can tell you what I want to say. And now you can understand why I can't go through with this. And some of them did not. But some of them I was able to help them access the resources that is amazingly available in New York City through a lot of women's services, to a lot of different counseling, to a lot of language access. There are services for those women if they are strong enough to take the next step to go forward. But they didn't know about them, so I was trying to help them. So the courthouse isn't just a place where people come to get a guilty verdict for someone. It can also be a channel to a better life, to meeting people in public services Absolutely. who can help them get out of that situation. Because that, I'd like to think, is a temporary situation, whatever case that they're in. But getting them the kind of help that they need or housing or counseling, especially in sex abuse and domestic violence cases, the counseling is so critical and important so the victim does not blame themselves or their culture or their circumstances for what happened. So I was able to reach out to many of them. In terms of not taking me seriously, the first trial I ever did, I'm sure I've had amazing <laughs> judges who are mentors, but I'm sure a couple of them sat back and said, is she going to be able to speak where I can understand what she's saying? Because <laughs> that's happened. They saw your name and maybe they were worried that you might are not be Are we going to be able to understand a word of what she's saying? My first trial was a conviction. And I've been very fortunate to have had many of those. And for those, I credit my mentors, some of the judges who took me under their wing and guided me to do this, and several district attorneys like Mr. Murphy, who was a beloved district attorney in Staten Island. He had given me my job and said to me the first day, it's not about winning or losing. So I said to Mr. Murphy, you don't care if I lose? He goes, no, I care about your statistics. <laughs> but it is always about doing justice. And that, I thought, was a very profound statement that he made. If you believe someone is innocent, no matter how unpopular the decision might be, you still need, as a prosecutor, to be guided by your ethics. Because there's a lot of pressure as a prosecutor Absolutely. to get that win. And if people believe 
whether or not it's true, if the people believe that someone's guilty, there can be pressure as well to get a conviction. Yes, there is. But I can tell you as an attorney all these years, and especially as a prosecutor, whenever I read that an innocent man has spent 15, 20, 30 years in jail for a crime he did not commit, that to me is the worst result. Our criminal justice system is one of the best in the world. I've traveled a lot of different countries, grown up in a third world country. So I can tell you some of the rights that we take granted for our defendants here don't even exist in Middle Eastern countries. We don't even have a way to codify them. This, it does, doesn't exist. So it is one of the best, if not the best criminal justice system, but it's not perfect. So one of the things that I used to take a lot of pains when I was a prosecutor to teach the younger prosecutors, if you will, is again, ethics is so important. There is an erosion of belief in the justice system and justifiably so. There's so many wrong accusations, so many wrongful convictions. So at some point, the public trust starts eroding. One of the ways to get that back, it's a work in progress, is to stand by your convictions, even if it is the most unpopular decision. But if you believe somebody is innocent, whether as a prosecutor or as a judge, regardless of what the outcome in the community might be, you still have to do the right thing for that person. Because if this person doesn't get justice, then how do we know the next person coming in line, regardless of his race or his financial background or country of origin, justice to me has always been, has to be equal and blind. Because if justice is not blind, then it's not justice. Why don't we take a step forward to your appointment as a judge? Mm -hmm. How did that take place? My father had passed away about two years ago. He had stayed back with me after my mom had passed away as a teenager. He was my rock. He was my support system, supported me in everything that I decided to do. And he lost his battle to cancer. So during our last conversation, my dad said to me, I've been thinking about things, okay? We don't know what the future will bring. But I want you to put in your papers for a judge. I said, Dad, where did this come from? I said, I can't think about my career right now. I said, I want you to get better and come back and live with us because that's where my father was. He said to me, God will decide what happens with me. There's nothing I can do, but I need this promise. Your mom was never there to see you graduate college or law school or do your summation on a murder case as a prosecutor. He goes, I don't know if I'm going to be around to see this because that's up to God. But what I do want you to do is at least I want to know that you are putting your papers in. You have to promise. And I said to him, okay, <laughs> this is not my focus right now, but if you want me to promise it, I will. I've never broken a promise to my father when he was alive. I made a promise. It's absolutely not going to go anywhere, but I still have to keep my promise. This was a dying wish. This was my father's dying wish, it was. So I put in my papers and I said to myself, okay, let me get ready for my next trial because I didn't think. And with the amazing support I have from the Staten Island legal community, from the judges here, and I'm very indebted to our mayor, Bill de Blasio, for taking a chance on a young immigrant who came here with dreams. And I got appointed in April of 2015 and it's been a dream come true since then. If someone like me, a young child who grew up in India in a one-room apartment, not knowing how many of my 
friends who are going to continue school can actually dream of becoming a judge in New York City, the same New York City that has the Statue of Liberty that I saw and was very moved by, then there is a possibility that every young child, no matter in what country, can dream and they can achieve it. And the fact that you are either poor or you're a woman or you're from a third world country should never be the reason that you can at least try. Like I said, if I can inspire some young dreamer somewhere in the world against all possible odds of never ever getting somewhere, then this entire journey is worth it. Now for a quick break. Our MCLE confirmation code for this interview is 032117. Again, that's 032117. And now back to the interview. How has being coming from this background, how has it shaped your judgeship differently than some of the other judges around you? Well, for me, one of the things I wrote in my application for a judge was as an immigrant, I understood not just the needs of victims who had come into the courtroom, I also was very conscious of language issues, as I told you, since I was a child. One of the things that I'd like to help achieve for our justice system, for our court system in New York City, is access to justice through the proper language interpreters. Because when I was a prosecutor, I was able to speak most of the languages to communicate with my victims. But if I could not communicate effectively, there was no way I could have been successful in many of those prosecutions. Conversely, when you have a defendant who comes into our court system and doesn't speak English, coming into a criminal justice system is scary enough. You're in handcuffs, <laughs> you've been arrested, you have no idea sometimes what you're accused of. Have you felt that people were surprised to see you up there on the bench? Yes, I was sitting in Manhattan last year in New York County, which has a complete a potpourri of different cultures, if you will. And there were quite a few people who had come into the courtroom and did a double take to make sure I was the right person sitting there. And it's been an experience. Like in any profession, you need to prove yourself, whether you're an accomplished artist or an accomplished attorney. You still have different challenges. Even your supervisors will throw you a hard case or a difficult and complicated legal issue to see if you can handle it hmm. and if you can handle it well. The good thing about being a judge is if somebody doesn't take you seriously, you'll make sure they do in, in short order. Well, one of the things that we've been taught and I'd like to aspire to is judicial temperament. And yes, while you have a gavel, the way I've always thought about it is if you need to use it, then you've lost control of the courtroom. Just a word from you should be enough. As a judge, I think it's even more crucial to be the gatekeeper, if you will. We spoke about defendants who are falsely accused or wrongly imprisoned. As a prosecutor, they have to do their job. I think defense attorneys do a great job in their role. But a judge who has so much latitude and discretion, in my opinion, can make sure that none of those rights have been violated. If they are, then the judge and the court is in a unique position to restore to the defendant. The judge is the maestro. The judge is yep, controlling absolutely. the entire the entire process. Right. 
And to restore confidence back in the justice system, you have to be vigilant. Because again, the rights that we all take for granted here are non-existent in many of the countries. So I'm very fortunate not only to be in this country, also be part of the legal system. You mentioned uh, before the taping that it's not always been, you know, red apples and roses for the judge. And sometimes (laughs) it's been quite the opposite. Yes, it can be. Uh, Even as a prosecutor, I've had death threats to my house and people send letters. And this obviously would upset my father because they would find where I lived personally and get my personal cell phone. But then when you are doing a job as a public official or in the public eye, it's not only to do the right thing and inspire confidence, it's also to be fearless. You can't let somebody threatening you or somebody disrupting the system affect the way that you conduct yourself. And it has never bothered me as a prosecutor before. When I've been threatened after conviction, one of my defendants said, wait till I come out. I will come and get you. This he said in open court. And I said to myself, well, in 45 years, if I'm still here, you can come and get me. It's fine. You have to, it comes with the job. It's almost a military attitude. It's a difficult job, but it's a very doable job. Dealing with these types of intense issues, violent crimes, murder, what is the outlet? How do you relax and unwind at the end of the day? For me, it's always been simple. My art, um, my dance, uh, performing it, teaching, choreographing, reaching out to people has always been an outlet for me. As I became a prosecutor involved in women's issues and children's issues, I'd say, okay, wiping a tear is more important for them, giving them a lifetime ahead of living a life free of fear, free of violence is as crucial. But you think you need a balance at some point. You do need to balance the seriousness of what you do with creativity and bringing a little bit of joy and happiness to the people who maybe watch it. It's my form of entertainment. So dance was your way of bringing light to others. And now as a, as a judge and as a, a prosecutor, it was also a way of bringing light perhaps back into your, yourself. It, it your lightened life. my load of what I was dealing with. And that was my outlet to go to. More importantly, it gives you the inspiration to start anew the next day. Knowing what you're going to face, knowing what your assignment is, which is not pleasant many days, but it still gives you the inspiration to move forward. It was your mother's art that first brought you here. Is this what she imagined for you? I think this even exceeded my mother's imagination. She would have been happy if I was allowed to attend college because she knew I had potential to make a meaningful contribution to whatever society or whatever field I chose. But what's amazing about this country and the opportunities it gives us is you can even exceed your expectations or your parents' expectations. I know neither of my parents are here anymore to witness me be here but I feel that presence with me all the time. I hope it guides me to do the right thing. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. 
Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.